You're listening to Oh No Lit Class. Mostly dead authors, fresh takes. Ruining required reading, one book at a time. Welcome to Ono Lit Class, the podcast that wants Gertrude Stein to touch our tender buttons. Yeah, you know what that's about. Or maybe you don't, and you should Google it. Leave safe search off. I'm Megan. Oh, that's MJ. I'm RJ, and today we have BJ. <laughs> Hello, hey. We, we have our, our special guest that we're super excited to introduce, BJ Mendelssohn. Thank you for coming on. Thank you so much for having me. Among many things, because... Wow, you've you've done a lot of things. Yeah, he's uh, in Star Wars. <laughs> he's the bad guy. And Robin Hood. Yeah. <laughs> I, I should say, because Captain Marvel's coming out uh or this week after we re- we record this, so uh, I am not a scroll. Good to know. It's important. Despite the fact uh, uh you know, Ben Mendelssohn plays like the scroll leader. Uh so just just to assure everybody. I, I'm not one of them. I did not know this. This is a spoiler for me, I guess. <laughs> <laughs> You're not a scroll. It's good. We established that up front. You are is the author of a book that uh, I became familiar with back when I still worked in marketing called Social Media is Bullshit and the comic book Vengeance Nevada. That I haven't read, but that's a real good title and I'm going to read it now. It's out for a dollar on Comixology. So if you're looking for uh, a cheap comic book to pick up along with everything else that comes out on Wednesday, I encourage people to do so. Hell yeah. And then you're currently working on a new project that's sort of more germane to RJ and my general nonsense involving our old friend Charles Dickens. A- that's right. A.K.A. Ch- Chuck- Chucky Dicky, as he gets called <laughs> on here. <laughs> is that is that his nickname on the show, Chucky Dicky? One of them. <laughs> I think there are a few. Oh, we're, we're, this is a PG show, right? I'm just making... <laughs> <laughs> I know you were kid. I know you're kidding, but like the look of shock on RJ's face was real good for a second there. Because when he, when he said Chucky Dicky, I was, I was just thinking of like calling him just you know a raging asshole. The more I read about him, like it just is not is not a good look. Uh, but yeah, I, I am working on uh, a book about, that involves another raging asshole, uh, the legally separate but very similar person named Ronald Chump. Well, that doesn't sound like anybody I know. <laughs> no, not at all, right? He's completely distinct, uh, although he does have baby hands. <laughs> and he's the star of a remake of a Charles Dickens and B.J. Mendelssohn's A Christmas Carol. And um, I know that that is up on your website. Yeah, that's right. I'm putting the whole book out for free, chapter by chapter, every couple of weeks or so. Although you've already demonstrated a significant animosity for Mr. Dickens, that is how he did. So you are emulating his style with the periodic installments for the public. No, I know that he published it week by week, which which was his style and what was you know the big thing at the time. And I tried to make sure I kept everything uh, in his voice to the point where I'm sort of beating people over the head uh, with some social justice issues. Uh, in my version of A Christmas Carol, because that's part of the reason why he wrote his. Yeah, as as he was wont to do. <laughs> that's right. So the, the we we keep saying Charles Dickens. The Charles Dickens novel that we're going to be talking about today is A Tale of Two Cities, and BJ, you chose that. <laughs> I did. You know, uh, so uh, part it was part of the deep dive for the Charles Dickens 
book that I was, I, I read everything that I could. I deliberately picked a, a Tale of Two Cities, though, because I couldn't get through it. And I, I just, for people who don't necessarily know uh, anything about me, you know, I'm looking at my desk right now. I've got about uh, 12 books, and one of them is like a 500-page history of silver in the United States. So if I have trouble getting through a book, it's because it's not good. <laughs> I know it's beloved. I know that like for baby boomers, it was it's definitely part of the curriculum that they grew up with going through school, but I found it impenetrable. And so I picked it because I was like, okay, if, if I'm going on a podcast to talk about this stupid book, I have to read it this time. I have to get through it. And I am pleased to announce that I did not. <laughs> uh, here's the thing. I have a thought here. You're saying that the book's so bad you can't get through it. This is actually the opposite of most porn movies. If you can't get through a porn movie, that means it's actually pretty good. You got to judge things. You have to be careful it's how you true. judge them around here. <laughs> no, that, that's very true. Uh, I, yes. That is, Dickens, I've had that porn. Yes. I've been working through the same porn movie for five years. It's a real banger. <laughs> Oh no! Is that the, is that the Boo. name of it? <laughs> oh, oh yeah. See, you can't. You, you put him on the spot, and he just falls completely flat. <laughs> That's right. I do too. <laughs> stop! Stop skimming the room around you. Just give up. <laughs> yeah, the art of painting with Bob Ross. <laughs> <laughs> I bet somewhere there there is a porn parody of Bob Ross that we just haven't discovered to get. Oh, I, I don't. It. I don't doubt it. When he unbuttons that top button, what's that chest hair out? <laughs> and then he beats the crap out of his paintbrush. Oh, he does. He beats the devil out of that it. That is kind of erotic. Yeah. This is already already gone so far off the beaten trails. So you said about Tale of Two Cities was that it's uh it was more of like a maybe baby boomer required reading. Maybe they don't uh, assign it as much. So we usually start with RJ because this is the quickest here. RJ, did you have to read Tale of Two Cities in school? No. That's the usual answer. <laughs> <laughs> So, BJ, did you have to read it while you were in school, or was it unfamiliar to you until you decided to tackle it for your deep dive? Yeah, it was, but I was a terrible student. I was one of those weird kids that, like, would go home and read The Agony and The Ecstasy just for fun, uh, but not do, like, any of the assigned reading for class, because I decided that telling jokes would be way more <laughs> better use of my time. So, I was that kid, so I had to read it, but I did not. I did not have to read it to the little college because for like the first two years of undergrad, Brit Lit owned my ass. <laughs> and I was not a fan of it then. And this didn't help. That would be a great title, by the way, for porn. Uh, Brit Lit owns my ass. There yeah. Go, yeah. <laughs> Daddy Dumas. Oh, no, he's not. Brit. No, <laughs> nope. He's French. Way to fuck it up. You know what? You Marlo. Keep, you, you keep this up. So BJ might, uh, might end up being a regular. All I got to do is just like fill in the bottom bit of the R for RJ. It's a very smooth transition. <laughs> no. All right, well then, prove your worth, earn your keep. Give 11 us... inches. Gross. Nope. <laughs> start, start us off with your background before we get into the story proper. So like getting back on a familiar horse. Let's get deep <laughs> in Chuckles Dickles once again. But I don't want to get very deep. Now, in... if you want to hear Chucky's full backstory and bio, please listen to one of our earlier episodes. Great expectations and uh, uh, I almost said nightmare before Christmas and the Christmas Carol. <laughs> it was a nightmare and it did happen before Christmas. This is true. Uh, well, I think the episode is called the Nightmare Before Christmas Carol. Also, such a great title. Thank you. That's such a great title for a podcast episode. Thank you, BJ. So for today, however, we have just a quickie with the dicky. <laughs> yeah. So for the uninitiated, 
Chuckles was born February 7th, 1812 and died June 9th, 1870. In short, he was maybe the original social justice warrior. You called him a, a, so, a social justice warrior previously. And yeah, because he campaigned for, for the poor folks. Yeah. Dude went from scrapping in the sweat houses as a kid, doing all sorts of crazy stuff to machinery, to becoming one of the predominant Victorian writers, always championing the little people. Hashtag, get to work with chuckles. I don't even know what kind of hashtag that is, but okay. Hashtag. Just hashtags. Just hashtags. Yeah. Chuckles all loved them. He was always pounding it out. He definitely would have loved it. Like, that was something I found about him was, uh, let me back up. So, you know, at the top of the show, you mentioned uh, working in marketing and having to read my first book. And so, like, you know, that's sort of my background. And when I was doing the deep dive into Charles Dickens, he definitely was all about being a brand to the point where he burned all of his letters and anything else that could make him look bad. uh, He destroyed. Actually, yeah, he would have loved the shit out of Twitter, though. Yeah, I think that, so. that makes perfect sense. So Chuckles, I always respect him because dude knew how to grow some fucking facial hair like a boss. <laughs> if nothing else. <laughs> I can only aspire to such debonair looks. I have a question. Yeah? Does he count as a social justice warrior given his history of women? It was, I think it was in the Great Expectations episode because we mentioned that there were definitely causes that he was a significant champion for and other stuff that... Eh, so much no women didn't have rights then Uh. (laughs) workers did Uh. since we've covered uh, mr dickens before i actually wanted to focus on the tale of two cities as a publication and the historical background that led chuckles to writing it people are horny for that french revolution at least you know like in in song form (laughs) definitely in song form. so what (laughs) led to the french revolution megan inform me what now what led to the French Revolution? People were poor and pissed off and they murdered the aristocracy. Why were they poor? Because of taxes. Why and beca- taxes? Because of the oppressors. Oh. There you go. Yeah. Oh. We'll get the rest of the story. B- BJ knows. BJ's going to bail me out. Uh-huh. Yeah, so they, they basically went broke, um, everyone in France, because they had been funding this. It's just, I think it's the coming out of the Seven Years' War into the American Revolution. So they had been in this extended period of war with with England uh, to the point where they just could not sustain what was happening on the country level. And then going on with the royalty, uh, they continued to spend money as if they, they were printing it. So that's really what, what sort of led the groundwork to the French Revolution. And then, you know, them looking over to what happened in the United States and going, oh, well, shit, <laughs> we do that here. <laughs> okay, I remember some of that in Hamilton. Yeah, so I'll say, which I actually have here. I know for a fact Megan's grasp of European history is abysmally poor. <laughs> wow. BJ's grasp is obviously much better. So, first of all, A Tale of Two Cities was originally put out for public consumption in 1859 when Chucky was 47. It was published in All the Year Round, which was Dickens's own literary periodical. Unlike most of his works, it was actually published on a weekly basis. Usually his works are actually coming out on a monthly serial basis, so this one had a much quicker turnaround for him. As Megan will likely discuss in depth, the story is generally about the effects of the French Revolution in London and in Paris, hashtag spoilers, the two cities that are in the title that I've come to learn. I've always assumed it was about St. Paul and Minneapolis. I mean, yeah, as, as, as you would. They're the Twin Cities. <laughs> Those are two of them. That would be, that would have been a much better book. So to understand the context of the tale, we should probably know a little bit about the French Revolution. But to know that, we need to actually back up a little bit further to, as BJ referred to, the Seven Years' War. So he just just summed summed it up way way better. That's what I wanted you to do, and you didn't. (laughs) Nope. (laughs) 
So Dateline, the world, from 1756 to 1763. The Seven Years' War is actually referred to as World War Zero by some historians because of its breadth and ramifications. What started things was France and Great Britain fighting over land in North America. Eventually, other European powers were pulled into the skirmish. The teams were basically as follows. Great Britain, Prussia, and Portugal versus France, the Holy Roman Empire, Russia, Spain, and Sweden. In the end, France and their allies got their asses kicked. France's side of the war suffered nearly three-quarters of a million in deaths. The British side also suffered about eh, 300,000 deaths. For losing, France had to give up basically all their land in North America to Great Britain, save for territory up in eastern Canada. France also had to give up the land that it had in India. France had to give up Louisiana to Spain, and Spain had to give up Florida to Great Britain. Although they would actually eventually give it back, because who the fuck wants that place anyway, right? <laughs> no one. Disney hadn't even been invented not yet. Not even Floridians. Okay, so did France like end up helping America out in the Revolutionary oh, War we're gonna out get to of that. spite? That's part, that's part of the story. Okay, because now it just seems like they were doing it out of spite. So there were a few immediate results that came from this hubbub. One, France remained ever so pissed at Great Britain, as it really was a war that was started by British aggression against French outposts. The perhaps bigger thing was that the war effort cost Great Britain a lot of money. So what do you do? Tax. And who to tax? Well, the colonies you spent trying to keep part of your empire. And well, we know how that whole taxation without representation thing sat with the North American colonists. See that? There you go. Hamilton. All my history. So within a decade, hostilities were back on. Now it was the colonist against the mother country. Now the American Revolution, we are all probably much more well-versed in, Megan included. Yeah. As we all probably also know, France played a big role in helping the Americans win. Why did they help? Because they still harbored a grudge against the Brits for the Seven Years' War thing. So I was right. It was spite. The world's greatest (laughs) motivator. And the Spaniards helped out basically for the same reasons. After winning this war, however, France was left in a rough place. France went into debt for helping out the Americans. How much debt? Oh, you know, just to the tune of about $10 billion. Holy shit. Now, are you adjusting that? Yeah. Okay, okay. I was going to say, that's like an unfathomable amount of money in today money, but you're saying $10 billion adjusted to today money. Yeah. That's still a fuck ton of money. It is. Absolutely. So France now faced basically the same issue the Brits had and the same quandary, and they were short on cash. So what do you do? According to BJ, you just keep spending it. (laughs) Yeah, well, they follow the same playbook the Brits did. And this brings us to this week's Common Sense and with RJ, brought to you by the knowledge of the common folk. Look, if Billy jumps off a cliff and dies, then Janie jumps off the cliff and dies, what's going to happen when Billy Jack jumps off the cliff? He's going to land on his feet because Billy Jack is a kung fu master from 1970s movies. Well, or that character from Pitfall. Yeah, where he lands on top of the alligator's mouth, he's totally fine. That too. That's a possibility. You didn't tell us what was in the pit. I said it was a cliff, not a pit. To Megan's point, Billy Jack might look like a badass as he is America's number one hero. (laughs) But despite that, he will likely also probably die as well. In short... We've mentioned Billy Jack so many times on this goddamn show. (laughs) He's America's number one hero. It says it right there. In short, if it's broke, don't keep doing it. Hashtag break the cycle. (laughs) Wait, I have another question for that requires the wisdom of the common folk toilet snakes are they a thing in florida and if so what do you do when you encounter them you grill them <laughs> you scream and you flush the toilet really hard and then you burn the establishment that that toilet was housed in okay so probably what they should have done is do some studying and figure out why the brits failed initially and devise a plan on succeeding where others failed 
For example, if Billy Jack realizes all he needs to do is build a parachute before jumping off the cliff, that's kind of the genius and ingenuity I'd expect from a man who beats up old racist white folk for a living. You should take the lesson to heart too. And that's Common Sense with RJ. Brought to you by me, RJ. How about that? I got common sense. Yeah, sure. We could go with that. <laughs> so anyway, France, it did the same thing the Brits did and raised taxes. Of course, they didn't raise taxes on the rich, since the rich were those in power, and they wouldn't raise taxes on themselves. Instead, they raised it on the poor. The poor did not take to this too kindly. What? Uh, and so we got the French Revolution in the Reign of Terror. This is what happens when you tell people they shall eat cake, but there is no cake to eat. Never, ever lie about cake, GLaDOS. Oh, boy. That was a, a deep and ancient meme you just called upon there. It was. Marie Antoinette. <laughs> yes, Marie Antoinette. The oldest of memes. <laughs> yeah. The rich and powerful were rounded up and killed, beheaded, or otherwise just imprisoned. The uh, French Revolution sparked a number of other revolutions around the world. Many empires began to shrink or just fall altogether. The revolution gave rise to some small guy, literally named Napoleon. I gotta fight you on that. Please so, do, yeah, please do. I gotta fight you on that. So, um, Napoleon actually isn't short. It was a myth perpetrated by the English. I think he, think he was only about 5'7 or so, but back then that was, like, huge. Like, that was enormous. But they decided that as part of the propaganda campaign, and because there's no internet, you can't fact check anything, they were like, no, no, he's short, he's little, he's dumb. Got tiny hands. He's got tiny baby hands. I can't let the Brits get away with it. <laughs> I just can't. Uh, Napoleon can't play in the NBA. <laughs> I don't think that 5'7 guy got enough hops to dunk on the hoop. I don't know, but that's a great mental image. Of Napoleon's ugly? hat? Yes. With the hat. Yeah, yeah. you have the hat. Yeah. So after the revolution, the French put into power what is known as the rights of man. The recognition of basic human rights for all citizens. While at the time of the revolution, a lot of the world was scared and shocked as to what was going on. In particular, empires like Great Britain were very uneasy as what to do or think as an empire not wanting something like that to happen among their own populace. Over time, the world realized the importance of what happened in France, and those in power realized that what happened there would probably have ramifications that could not be ignored or bottled up, and so they decided the best move was to move forward themselves. Kind of like, oh, that kind of looks bad. Guess we'll change a bit. <laughs> Just enough. And as for Charles Dickens himself... He put out a tale of two cities almost a century after the revolution was in full swing. And now, I turn it over to Megan, who has been educated. I learned a thing about a history. You did? <laughs> also, just so you know, I guess the Dark Knight Rises. Yes. Oh, yeah. No, 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 no. Oh. Yeah. I have a note about that. When we get to uh, adaptations, and then I guess all three of us are going <laughs> to excitedly talk about it. <laughs> 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 Okay, before we move into the story proper, uh, BJ, is there anything you want to talk about? One, just one quick thing, because the book comes out in 1860, I think. So it's not too far removed from the revolution, but it, it's definitely from the British point of view. Like, this is definitely not something that was even-handed in the way some of the other Charles Dickens books were. Oh, yeah, absolutely not, because he has no issues critiquing British society when, like, the book is just set in england like per normal but you start bringing other countries in and suddenly it's like oh no no i gotta rep the homeland 
One thing that's worth pointing out also is that even though Dickens was like the OG social justice warrior uh, in a lot of respects, you know, he he still became wealthy himself to the point where he wanted to maintain that status. And so you can kind of see in A Tale of Two Cities where he's sort of warning the rich people instead of saying to the poor people, hey, uh, rise up and overthrow it. He, you know, it, it, more, <laughs> it more comes out of you reap what you sow. And he's sort of saying that to the wealthy people that would read the book. Right. That he's saying, hey, wealthy people, maybe be less shitty or the poor people are going to come murder you as opposed to like take up arms for the proletariat i still don't have cake we'll get you cake later it'll be entomans find yeah. it at the end of the grocery aisle <laughs> sponsored by entomans except no we're, we're not <laughs> <laughs> but you could be then yeah let's uh let's get into a tale of two cities it's got everything that you would come to expect from a dickens it's got sprawling timelines weird families stupid names the aristocracy, a series of extremely convenient plot contrivances and wacky coincidences. You know the drill. Also, per the usual from Dickens, it's 45 goddamn chapters long. <laughs> so 45 weeks. That gets you basically from the beginning of the year to the end of the year. You yeah. take a few breaks in there. There you go. So uh, get out your name tags, your thumbtacks, your long bits of string and whatever else you might need to make your uh, conspiracy theory style wall web to keep up with this shit. It's true detective season four. Yes. True, true Dickens detective. I would love to see that if they could get Matthew McConaughey to play Charles Dickens. Oh shit! I would be. It's amazing. I would be all over that. Let's, let's do that. Let's let's make it happen because that's the only way you're getting through a tale two cities. Like it's it's it was definitely written for a serialized audience, but once it's pressed together, kind and I don't know what you what you guys think, but to me, it sort of reads incoherently as a collected edition. Yeah, no, that's definitely something we've talked about with dickens before that the way he wrote it and the way it was originally read was in periodic installments and that yeah when you got to plow through it all at once it's a very different experience but now i'm just picturing these these first famous lines because they're they're one of the more famous opening lines in literature being read by matthew mcconaughey <laughs> here do you want do you want to do your voice do you... oh, hold on. i'm looking up some facts here i'm on napoleon.org still we have moved on from napoleon according to napoleon.org keep up <laughs> the man who bought the clothes from Napoleon said the man was five foot six. There you go. Right. And this is the history website of the foundation, Napoleon. Why would they possibly lie? I need your Matthew McConaughey impression. Buick. Bu- Bu- Buick. Drive Buick. a Buick. It was the best of times. It was the worst of times. All right, all, yep. right, all right. All right. All right. All right. <laughs> what was am the I age, reading? was the age of wisdom. So what do you want me to do? It's you, right. You're reading the opening. All right, all right, all right. It was the best of times. It was the worst of times. It was the age of wisdom. It was the age of foolishness. You're already so far from Matthew McConaughey, but just keep going. <laughs> it was the epic of belief. That is not... Okay, epoch. nope, you, you've lost your privileges. Epoch. Epic. It was the epoch of belief. It was the epoch of incredulity. It was the season of light. It was the season of darkness. It was the spring of hope. It was the winter of despair. We had everything before us. We had nothing before us. We were all going direct to heaven. We were all going direct the other way. It's very cheeky. Swingers. (laughs) In short, the period was so far like the present period that some of its noisiest authorities insisted on its being received, for good or for evil, in the superlative degree of comparison only. Spoken like a man getting paid by the word. Yeah, yeah, it definitely does. So it's 118 words, basically to say... Some stuff was good in some places, but also kind of <laughs> shitty in others. Such is life. There. Bang. Did it in 17. Shit happens. 
<laughs> shit happens. Shit happens and you die. <laughs> <laughs> that, that, that could have been the entire book. Oh honestly. my god, it could have. So this opener goes on for a bit. And it's basically like, you know, things in England seem nice, but kind of aren't. Meanwhile, things in France seem like they're about to pop the fuck off. Everyone <laughs> says nothing's ever really going to change, but let's be real. We know that's bullshit. And that, that's our introduction. Hey, everybody, it's Megan coming at you, d- despite literally ev- ev- everything. Oh boy. Remember how I said I was sick in the last episode? Yeah, that ended up being the flu, which is, I still got a, like a nice little cough from. So like this episode, the next episode, I just recorded all up in that, that good flu space for you. I got some good vocal fry on my end right now. I could be like, a, I could do a This American Life. I could be like, and so I decided to investigate further and see uh, just what was really going on in this story. You gotta have that rising intonation and just that little bit of vocal rasp that I am rocking right now. Um, <laughs> this episode, like man, like pretty much all of our others, is supported by our wonderful, beautiful, and maybe even worth investigating further patrons, including our most recent patron, Juliana. So thank, thank you, Juliana. We don't have a pod pal this week because I. Haven't had my brain medication. That's a that's a fun insight into my life and insurance and the American way. Um, <laughs> and also nobody nobody came out and was like, "Hey, put put us on this episode." No one like Corbin David Alba, who was supposed to cut a promo for us like a billion years ago, and just hasn't because I guess he's lazy. His show's called Corbin versus the World. He's very funny. I went to Seattle with him. He's a hilarious dude. You might have tuned in for our deranged live stream while we were there. Uh, check out Corbin versus the world i'd love to play your pro but i can't because he did he didn't give me the one that he was supposed to make dummy he's, he's still a funny guy though the story proper begins with a little old man named jarvis Laurie. i thought you were saying napoleon no <laughs> he works for a bank called telson's in london and he's on a shitty journey from england to france and it's shitty because he's stuck wallowing in the mud because the carriage he was in broke down because i guess the horses broke Anyway, this guy uh, suddenly just comes riding up on a horse yelling for Mr. Laurie, and his name is Jerry, which is funny, and I love it because it's like an anti-Dickens name, because he always has so many just horrendous names. It's like, yes, I'm Jarvis Laurie, and this is my good friend, Jerry. Yeah, this is Jerry. <laughs> I, I wonder if that was just writer's block on his part, because it does seem it does seem odd for this guy just <laughs> just to be Jerry. Just Jerry. I don't, I don't know. There's got to be some Jerrys in there, you know? So Jerry, <laughs> he rides up to the carriage and delivers Laurie a letter that he reads, and then he tells Jerry to go back to London and deliver a message of just three words. RJ, you got any idea what those three words might be? Pound that pussy. Gross. Hashtag pound it. See, I was going to say 420 blaze it. Let it go. <laughs> <laughs> let, it, let it go. Do you want to build a snowman? That is not three words. Yeah, do you? That's, that's three Wanna? words. No. Build a snowman. Build a snowman. <laughs> Good job. Uh, it is recalled to life, which is mysterious. You want you want to do a new with me? Ooh. Ooh. Call me to life. No, it was re- recalled to life. Is the three words? Not call me to life. No. Call <laughs> me to. Recall me up. Yeah, that's it. <laughs> do do do. Oh god, that's gonna be stuck in my head now. 
for like a year. <laughs> You're welcome. <laughs> yeah, thanks. So, in fact, it's uh, it's so mysterious that even Jerry doesn't know what the fuck it means. He thought it was Nickelback. <laughs> it's it's this very cryptic scene. The other people that are traveling on the carriage with Mr. Lawyer are just like, what could that have mean? Or what could that have mean? What could that have meant? And meant. 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 And meanwhile, Jerry's just like, uh, you, you, want, you want to elaborate on that one? And can I tell you, like, the, this introduction is fabulous. And I was really disappointed that the rest of the book does not hold up to it. It's true. It's a really good, like, mysterious, you know, almost kind of spooky intro, and it absolutely does not hold up. So Lori uh, stops in Dover for the night, and he meets up with an 18-year-old girl at the inn that he's staying at. Yes. And I have some things to share about this 18-year-old girl. Uh, <laughs> which is not... <laughs> That's a good phrase. I should probably not be so excited to say it or enthusiastic to say that. But this is something I also found in researching Charles Dickens. And it's something I did with Christmas Carol where I injected people that I actually know. So like for people that read it over on my website, which is bjmendelson.com, cheap plug, cheap plug, cheap plug. Uh, <laughs> the character of Chauncey Duran, who appears in my version of Christmas Carol, is actually an actual person that I used to go out with. And so I guess I'm not the only writer who <laughs> interjects your, your current partner because that was also what's happening here the 18 year old that that appears was based on the actual 18 year old that uh he was fucking at the time named ellen turnin and this is sort of why i I asked (laughs) earlier whether or not you can count dickens as like a social justice warrior because i I kind of felt like yeah it's certainly true with with how he wrote about the poor but at the same time yo he's celebrating his 207th birthday this year we found out just last month that his wife catherine uh, mother of 10 of his children, he tried to manage to like an insane asylum. Yeah, tried to conveniently just sort of push her out of the way there. Is what, what's crazy to me is not only did, did he do this, he definitely thought he would get away with it. And I think this is what leads to, because he gets separated from her in 1858. And then uh, it's not too long after that he does like the infamous burning of all the records and all that. There's actually a film starring Felicity Jones called, I think, The Invisible Women about Ellen Turnin for people who want to go and check that out. But yeah, Lucy in this book is totally a, a real person that he was banging. Huh. So that, that's, that's going to put an interesting spin on things. Also just, you know, gross. <laughs> right. There was definitely a 20 year age difference between him and Turnin at this point. Icky. Not a fan. So yes, that, that girl is, is Lucy Min- Minette? Minet? I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to fuck up so many pronunciations. I just went with Lucy, honestly. So she's there because she was told to meet with Mr. Laurie because he has information about her dead dad's estate. And Mr. Laurie recognizes her because when she was a child, he spirited her away from France to England. You know, because of course, because it's a Dickens novel. Everybody's connected to everybody else. But he doesn't tell her that. Instead, he tells her that he uh, has something to tell her. But he's all awkward and weird about it because he is, quote, a man of business, which which means that he has to be detached or something like that. Yeah, I didn't get that. Like, I, I know that it's Victorian times, but I, that even for that time period, that seems like a really weird vague kind of way to describe it. Yeah, it's it's weird. So he, he says, like, OK, you know, I, I know you want to hear about your dad, but like, let me tell you a hypothetical story instead for like no clear reason. What if there was once a French doctor with a tiny baby French daughter? And she's like, yeah, that's me. He's like, shut up. It's a hypothetical situation. (laughs) And and what if that tiny baby French girl's mom died when the girl was only two after searching for and failing to find her father, hypothetically speaking? And Lucy's like, yeah, that's, that's me. That's my dead mom and also my dead dad. Why are we doing this? And he's like, because what if, you know, just spitballing, purely hypothetical supposition, just throwing wild ideas around from nowhere, this French doctor could potentially 
maybe, who, who fucking knows, really, be your dad and also not dead, but actually alive. And then we could both go to France and find him. And then Lucy faints. <laughs> <laughs> and this is where the book started to lose me. <laughs> Honestly, like, I may, uh, yeah, I make it through the sequence of her meeting her father and the, the trial. This is where I honestly start to fade a bit. And on to chapter three of 45. <laughs> <laughs> Pretty much. So we start up to Paris, where everyone is poor and miserable, and a barrel of wine bursts in the street, and Dickens is like, the wine was red, like blood is red. It was all over the streets of Paris, like blood might be, during a revolution. This is called foreshadowing. I hope you like it. Copyright Charles Dickens, TM, TM, TM. And then, uh, so inside a nearby wine shop is a dude named Ernest Defarge, and he's the owner of the store, and he's a tough-looking guy, and, uh, he's got a wife named Madame Defarge. Defarge. Madame Defarge. I took French in college. Um, who also looks like someone that you don't want to mess with, and she's always knitting in, in what I assume is a very tough and intimidating manner, because, like, you don't want to fuck around with knitters, man. She could stab you in the eye with a knitting needle. She, she could strangle you to death with yarn she like, could kill the batman she could kill the batman but we'll get there <laughs> so anyway the reason we're, we're at the defarge's wine shop is that lucy and mr Laurie go there presumably to pick up lucy's previously believed to be deceased dad and mr Laurie is like nervous and asks uh, defarge if the doctor has changed much since he was brought there and then defarge just yells change and he punches a wall so you know but make of that what you will uh he leads lucy and mr Laurie into a guarded back room but they open the door and we find Lucy's dad, Dr. Manette. Manet. Manette. I'm going to say Manette. Apparently he was locked up in the Bastille this whole time for stuff we don't need to know until it's convenient to the plot. And he's free now. Because see previous reasoning. Prison has not been kind to Dr. Manette and he doesn't remember Mr. Laurier really anything before his time in the Bastille where they kept him locked in a room and made him cobble shoes. And uh, the good doctor is cobbling still. And he's, he's got to cobble a lot. <laughs> he's the cobbler. Yeah, he's Adam Sandler's the cobbler. Um, Sandy Wexler. That's how you should imagine this whole time. That would be great if she opens up the door and it's Adam Sandler standing there making, like, terrible <laughs> shoes. <laughs> but as soon as he sees Lucy, it's okay, because he starts to remember her in his previous life. And everyone cries. And Lucy says France is a trash country. I should take her dad back to England. And they'll all live happily ever after. The end. Yay. 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 That was nice and quick. Yeah, I know, but it, no, not really. I'm sorry. Oh. Five years pass, and now it's 1780. And Dickens spends a whole chapter talking about how Telson's bank, where Mr. Laurie works, is, is gross and dirty. And also Jerry, remember Jerry? He's a dick who beats his wife for praying, and also, like, digs up dead people for some reason. What the fuck, <laughs> Jerry? That would have made a much better title for the book. <laughs> <laughs> what the fuck, Jerry? Also, his last name is Cruncher, so guess what? He also had a stupid Charles Dickens name all along, after all, because his name is Jerry Cruncher. So he, he goes off to the aforementioned Dirty Bank, and they send him to uh, the courthouse for with another message from Mr. Laurie. So Mr. Laurie's at the courthouse because there's a trial for high treason going on, and Jerry is hyped as hell because the punishment for being convicted of treason is being drawn and quartered. And watching someone get their entrails torn out, like a la Mel Gibson at the end of Braveheart, is his kink, I guess. Well, when you don't, when you don't have the internet, you gotta get your rocks off however you can. This is true. No internet, no TV, you know, one does what one can. Quick, quick aside, do you think, like, when your entrails get pulled out, do they become your out-trails? <laughs> they become the organ trails. <laughs> <laughs> if you take someone's veins and your innards and you really stretch them out. Yeah. All the way to Oregon oh. and back. <laughs> and that's how we got the Oregon Trail. From Oregon to the moon and back. <laughs> 
You got a lot of that in you. That's how the saying goes. Yeah. (laughs) But uh, Jerry's not the only one in town with a hard-on for courtroom drama potential guts removal. The place is packed with excitable drunks there to watch what Dickens wants to make sure we realize is an extremely handsome man standing trial. His name is Charles Darnier, and he's just so, so very good looking that you might be wondering if this is his major defining trait. That and having the same initials as a, a certain author. Yeah, nuts. No, it's crazy. Oh my god, and he oh, and he ends up with Lucy. Yep. That was something else that I found with Charles Dickens in all of his work. There is usually a character with the initials of CD that's sort of like the stand-in for him. Holy shit, I have to go back now. Look at all this. Yeah, like, of course he's going to hook up with, like, the hot young girl because, you know, this is Charles Dickens we're talking about. And he's super handsome. Oh my god, I feel really dumb for not noticing this. So yeah, no, he's just Charles Darnay. Definitely not Charles Dickens, original <laughs> character. Do not steal. Um, He's just handsome and he's there. And uh, Mr. Laurie and Lucy and Dr. Manette are also there because they're witnesses in the trial, apparently. Because Charles Darnay, apart from being pretty, is also being charged with high treason on the grounds of carrying on a long and presumably very sexy correspondence with the French, which we've all just talked about why that's bad in 1780. I just want to point out that... Uh... That the, the title of my autobiography is going to be a long and sexy correspondence with a friend. <laughs> That's good. I am glad to have contributed to that. <laughs> they call up this dude, John Barsad, as a witness who says that Darnay carried lists between France and England. What was on the list? Who cares? Not yeah, a I thought you meant the composer list. Yeah, he, ca- he carried Franz list. <laughs> Hard job, someone got to do it. And then uh, next up is Mr. Laurie, who says nothing useful. And then Lucy comes, and everyone has to stop and appreciate like how beautiful she is in, in that weird, innocent, virginal way that women are beautiful in Dickens novels. Unless they're evil, then it's like a cold, cruel beauty. There are only two kinds of beauty. <laughs> <laughs> But anyway, Lucy testifies that she and her father were on a boat from France and like her dad was sick and and Darnay helped in in some vague, non-specific way. And then uh, Dr. Manette takes a stand and says he doesn't remember anything at all. So it's good witness tap there. (laughs) The defense lawyer cross-examines a different witness and in true like courtroom drama fashion, he's like, are you sure you didn't confuse Darnay with someone else? Someone like him? And he points to a dude in the corner named Sidney Carton, who conveniently and apparently just entirely by coincidence looks exactly like Charles Darnay. Just, you know, cuz. It's, it's classic Dickens, you know, like it's just a one random crazy happenstance. Yep. What are the odds? What are the odds? <laughs> I, I understand it from like a writing point of view where it's sort of an easy out, but it's so annoying and it happens all the time with his stuff so yeah every, everybody's just like whoa and then they decide hey trial's over and they quit darnay and, and you know my, my question is like if their whole defense is hey there's this other dude who looks exactly like the guy you think committed treason why is Sidney carton not suddenly suspicious and potentially being charged with treason so i want to ask this as well uh do they even apologize to the guy on trial Nope. No, like, it's, <laughs> hey, we're going to rip you in half of horses. Oh, wait, it was this other dude. Sorry. They don't even say sorry. It's like, oh, yeah, get on out of here. <laughs> they did the best they could with the information they had. <laughs> this is where I tap out on the book. I've made it this far three of the four times I've tried to, to read through the entire thing. It's not designed in such a way to really hold your interest to 45 chapters. No, not not all at once. But then you're going you're gonna to miss, see, you missed some of the sick bits. But that's great because that's what I'm here for. <laughs> so the answer to why Sidney Carton was even at the trial is because the uh, the defense lawyer, whose name is Mr. Striver, 
is an idiot, and Sidney Carton is his partner and the brains of the two, and it was his idea to use himself to get Darnay off, which is weird, because, like, what, he looked at Darnay and went, like, holy shit, this dude looks exactly like me, like, that's weird, I can use this. And, uh, you know, why Why is he, like, speaking through this other lawyer? Why can't he just be his own lawyer? And, and also, like, Carton, just as a character, is mopey and depressed for seemingly no reason. He goes to dinner with everyone to, to celebrate, and he decides he actually hates Darnay and gets upset, because Darnay and Lucy are making sex eyes at each other. And I guess Carton wanted to make sex eyes at her, and so, even though he basically saved the day... He's just like a huge emo dick to everyone until Darnay's just like, dude, what's your problem? Carton's like, because I'm worthless and terrible and no one will ever love a disappointment like me, which is barely paraphrasing. <laughs> and uh, yeah, Darnay is just like, I have zero interest in trying to unpack all of that and, and you can go now. <laughs> uh, he, he then went on to be the frontman for the band they used. Like, not even kidding. <laughs> we learn more about how Striver is like a big, drunk, useless jerk, and, and Carton does all the good lawyering for him, and I have no idea why, because they don't get along, and, and Carton hates him, and Dickens never really tells us, except that Carton hates himself more, because he keeps doing it, and Striver gets drunk and is all like, hey, I saw you checking out that pretty girl at the trial, and Carton's like, no, I wasn't, She she's ugly and probably stupid, <laughs> and Striver falls asleep, and, and then suddenly he's all... Oh, Lucy, you're actually super pretty, but I can never win you over because I'm such a garbage heap of a person. And like, what the hell is wrong with Carton? Who hurt Who hurt him? I mean, this Victorian time, so you have you have no shortage of options to choose from. This is true. But also, like, he's 25. He's, he's too old for this weird emo kid shit. <laughs> it's true. Although, uh, if you look at the way certain uh, people in their 30s behave when Captain Marvel came out uh, or when Wonder Woman <laughs> came out... <laughs> See, but that's the cart Carton doesn't like really direct it at anyone. It's all self-directed, True. which makes it even weirder. Time passes and everything in the Minette household is like awesome. Lucy and her dad are happy. Mr. Laurie's always around and Darnay keeps showing up to flirt with Lucy. Meanwhile, in France, things are very different. We meet the Marquis, a fancy French aristocrat with a million servants who dress him in gold and he is just an absolute shit. In the time we spend with him, his carriage runs over a child and kills them. And the kid's dad, as, as, as you might expect, yeah, as, as one does, he's extremely upset. And the Marquis is just like, I don't know what your problem is, but like, here's a gold coin, which is honestly better than a kid anyway. <laughs> And then the narrator tells us that everyone is poor and starving and sick and dying for the aforementioned tax reasons. E even the surrounding farmland is dying because, like, he's such a fuckweasel. Like, it's in The Lion King when, when Scar took over and the land just up and died because he knew he was evil. <laughs> the carriage gets stopped by a poor woman who says her children are starving and her husband has died and, and all she wants is money for, like, a small headstone for him because she's also going to die. And she's scared without anything to mark the grave. People won't be able to bury her by her husband. The, the Marquis ignores her and then probably flips her the bird and goes home to his fancy mansion. Honestly, I'm surprised Dickens also didn't have him, like, strangle a cat and eat a baby just to <laughs> drive the point home. I, I'm totally picturing this naughty French guy just sticking out his middle finger as he drives by like, all the peasants. Pretty much. Yeah, he gets home and he's like, uh, you know, where's my dumbass nephew? And the servant's like, oh, he's coming soon for dinner. And come dinner time, the door's open to reveal... Any guesses? Any idea? Miss Havisham. <laughs> wrong, wrong Dickens story. The Ghost of Christmas Present. Nope, that's also a different Dickens story. Jack Skellington. Oh, God. It's Charles Darnay. Charles Darnay. Yes. Or Charles Dickens. Or Charles Dickens. <laughs> yeah. 
Or Napoleon. It's Charles. It's Napoleon. No, it's Darnay. Turns out he's landed French gentry. He's, he's the nephew of the Marquis. And he, he chews out the Marquis for being such an unwashed dildo and says that he renounces his landed titles, moving to England for good, and also fuck you. And the Marquis's all like, fuck you too. And, and that's the end of that. And the Marquis goes to bed and he's just like, little bastard, I'm gonna light him on fire or something. But that never happens. Because the next morning reveals that he's been stabbed to death. <laughs> R.I.P. Marquis, you were a taint whistle. It's funny that we have this guy on trial for conspiracy, right? But it takes, what, almost 100 pages, if not, uh, just for the first stabbing. (laughs) (laughs) Pretty much, yeah. So, meanwhile, Darnay is now permanently a good English boy, and he goes to Dr. Manette's house to ask the doctor for his daughter's hand in marriage. Everything's going great until he's just like, hey, look, also, if I'm going to marry your daughter, I need to tell you about my dark secret French past. And Manette is just like, nope, shut up, don't want to know, don't care, go away now. And Darnell does, and he's just like, that went well. While Manette has, like, a PTSD meltdown at the mention of, of France and dark pasts. And he starts he starts cobbling shoes again, which I know isn't necessarily supposed to be funny because it's like what he did in prison and it's a symbol of him like regressing. But the the mental image of Lucy being like, oh, no, how bad is it in the housekeepers? Like he's been cobbling again. You know, it really could have been a whole different book if Lucy opens up a small business. (laughs) It just (laughs) takes advantage. (laughs) We can sell these. I mean, he's going to make them anyway. Might as well. as well profit off it so eventually she calms him down and in the midst of all this carton goes to pay lucy a visit and she asks what's wrong and he trots out his usual spiel about like how he's miserable and hopeless and lucy doesn't know what the fuck to do with that like she's not his therapist and she's like well have you tried doing anything to maybe help yourself feel less like that instead of answering her because they, they both fucking know the answers. No. He goes on this tear of like, oh, Lucy, you can never love someone like me. And she's like, well, yeah, not when you come to my house and do weird shit. <laughs> and uh, she says, you know, we could be friends and I could try to help you with all this. Which is nicer than she has any right to be. And Carter just flails some more. And he's like, no, no, I am beyond saving. He never says why he's beyond saving. He just is. And then he leaves. I like to think that he's a serial killer. You know, <laughs> maybe there's just this trail of bodies under wherever he lives. And that's that's really why. All, because, I mean, how what else could you have possibly done for all the self-loathing? I don't know. It's a good question. Dickens doesn't care enough to tell that's us. Right. He randomly shows up at this woman's house, not to profess his love, but to, to remind her that she can't love him or help him. And then he just kind of goes on his way. It's fucking bizarre. So, so back at the uh, Defarge wine shop in Paris, we learn it's been a year since the Marquis stabbing incident, and the wine shop is home base for the secret plans for Le Revolution. And to protect anonymity, everyone is named Jacques, and all their plans are hidden in code in Madame Defarge's knitting. By which I mean, like, in the actual knitting itself. So, like, she's making, like, a, a scarf or a sweater or something, and the pattern secretly says, like, we're going to overthrow the monarchy. Jack. Jacques. Jack. Actually, I know you guys Jacques. Yeah, Jacques. I just like the idea of a sweater with a secret message that's just like, <laughs> murder the oppressors <laughs> tonight. <laughs> now on sale for 19.95. So they're, when they're alone, Defarge is sad and laments that change is taking too long to come. And, you know, maybe this whole revolution thing isn't even possible. And Madame Defarge uh, has a good kind of Lady Macbeth moment where she's just like, suck it up, buttercup. Stop being such a cowardly sad sack. Let's work on overthrowing our oppressors and murdering the rich. Like, get your shit together. And then uh, a spy comes and tells them that the daughter of Dr. Manette is living in England and is about to marry Darnay. And, like, Darnay's true identity is the Marquis' nephew. And they're all like, 
And Defarge is like, maybe you should add this to your knitting. And she's like, yes. And then she knits evilly. <laughs> this is like one of those memes uh, where you just see her knitting and under it it says, knitting intensifies. Yes, that's exactly, there's a lot of that. Knitting intensifies. So Lucy and Charles get married. Everything's great. Except then on the day of the wedding, like Charles takes Dr. Bennett aside and, and tells him, the something we don't know but probably related to his previous life as a fancy french aristocrat and manette's shit gets wrecked again and it's worse than ever he doesn't eat he doesn't sleep he won't listen or talk he will only make shoes <laughs> eventually he snaps out of it and he gets back to normal and he kind of talks it out with mr Laurie in that weird kind of roundabout hypothetical way except it's actually kind of useful this time because it helps manette like talk around his trauma and so like today you know in in the today times a a good friend would maybe like suggest some therapy or would have suggested therapy like five years ago when getting him out of prison but this is the 18th century and so instead Laurie just gets rid of manette's workbench and tools saying like well he can't relapse into ptsd cobblering if all your shit's gone (laughs) which is not the way to treat people who are suffering nah. from a mental illness. It's like That's that's just how we did back then. <laughs> it's like the exact opposite of what you're supposed to do. Lucy and uh, Darnay have babies. Lucy names her daughter Lucy, because of fucking course she does. <laughs> and Carton actually, like, stops being kind of shitty, and he becomes, like, their beloved Uncle Carton. And then we, we fast forward to 1789, and that means that over in France, it's time for the Defarges and their band of Jacques to storm the Bastille. Which I imagine probably sounds like this. I don't get it. No. No. No, I understand. (laughs) Best, best, best deal. They're storming the, storming the best deal. Playing best deal. It was good. It's about Pompeii. It's about the ash that came tumbling down Shut out of up. the sky. <laughs> you know, when Vesuvius he blew said, up. He said, he said, Walsh, it works. It's just a pretty wild fucking scene, but through it all, Defarge manages to locate Dr. Manette's old cell because he etched his initials into the wall, and he orders his jocks to tear the room apart looking for something. What? We'll find out, eventually, at some point. At the same time, Madame Defarge of the gang have captured the governor, and while they're supposed to wait for her husband and, like, take him all back to the wine shop, they instead stab him to death, and she cuts off his head. And Madame Defarge of the jocks mob are like, Hell yeah! Revenge is awesome! And then they go stick some guards' heads on pikes, so, like, we're just starting this revolution with the dial cranked all the way up to 11. It's it's the most metal revolution of all time. Things continue along speedily with Madame Defarge and a small woman who was only ever referred to as The Vengeance. (laughs) <laughs> that's just her name she's the vengeance great name for a band that's an objectively kick-ass revolutionary revolt name i'm surprised tarantino hasn't made this movie yet yeah <laughs> actually that's... get him on the phone i don't want i don't want to talk to him i would have taken this over to hateful eight any day of the week oh god literally any sane person would have <laughs> but does it have feet <laughs> does it have feet so Madame Defarge and The Vengeance hunt down this old aristocrat who once said that, like, starving peasants should just go and eat grass, and they strangle him to death, and they drag his body through the streets where everyone stuffs his pockets full of grass. Vive la revolution, motherfuckers! Pockets full of posies. <laughs> and, like, like, look, I know that even though we're, we're Dickens wants us to sympathize with these characters, we're probably not supposed to be down with all the wanton vigilante murdering, and... As we discussed, the revolution leads to a time period in France known as the Reign of Terror, which is pretty self-explanatory. Terror. <laughs> Just, but 
In the context of A Tale of Two Cities by Mr. Charles Dickens, this is literally the first interesting thing that has happened in this fucking book. It's true. And we are almost 30 chapters in. The best way to describe the way this era is like the old man on The Simpsons, where he's explaining to the kids, you know, if you misbehave, that's a paddling. So just replace <laughs> that's a paddling with that's a beheading. <laughs> that's a bit. That's a bit. And that's the way the terror. Like, that's all you need to know. Yeah. So, so, you know, when you have switching between like Lucy picking a boy to marry while Carton flagellates himself, or a lady named Vengeance and a lean, mean knitting machine running around Paris causing like murder and mayhem, it's not a hard choice to make. And unfortunately, all too soon, we leave the revolution and we head back to England. It's 1792 now. And as Darnay tries to talk Mr. Laurie out of taking a business trip to France, because, like, maybe now isn't the best time for that, dude. A letter arrives, addressed to the Marquis saint Evremond. That's, that's probably right. Care of Telson's Bank. Hmm. Who could have sent it? Who is it for? Mysterious. And Striver, who's also there for some reason, gossips that this new Marquis is a piss-baby coward who abandoned his lands and his people and won't come back to France. And Charles grabs the letter and he's like, oh yeah, I know that guy, I'll give it to him, this is suspicious, don't worry about it. And he reads it, and it's from a Monsieur Gabel, his uncle's old tax collector, basically begging Darnay to come home and help because these peasants are going to murder the shit out of Gabel for carrying out the Marquis' orders. And Darnay's like, fuck, I, I guess I got it. Does he tell his wife first? In her sleep. <laughs> not even that he he leaves her a note though which i'm sure is a very interesting read <laughs> just like hi sweetie so um i'm actually secretly french and aristocratic as fuck and now peasants are burning my family's house down so i gotta go deal with that hugs and kisses it's great it's fine it's gonna be awesome and so darnay is arrested basically the second he steps into france he's taken to paris and then he's thrown in prison and he's like the fuck did i do and defarge is there and he's like there's a new sheriff in town bro and it's the town where we are all the sheriff and we say go to prison and fuck you. He also asked Darnay if he's Dr. Minette's son-in-law. And Darnay's like, yeah, does does that help? And while Defarge doesn't answer him, it actually might. Because Lucy and her dad follow Darnay to France to try to save him. And as a former prisoner of the Bastille, Minette is basically a hero. He is worshipped by the revolutionaries and basically untouchable which he's hoping he can use to get Darnay out of prison, which they need to do fast because the revolutionaries have started murdering prisoners. So Manet goes to try and talk Darnay out of there, leaving Lucy alone with Mr. Laurie until the Defarges suddenly show up. Madame Defarge still knitting, which honestly seems kind of impressive because they're just like walking around. Like I don't know a ton about knitting, but I know there's a lot of like material right. and things. What do you think she's knitting? Like maybe a guillotine cozy? That would be kind of nice. I like one of those. Yeah, I gotta imagine, you know, as things get cold. <laughs> so uh, they deliver a letter from Darnay saying that he's okay, and Lucy kisses Madame's hand, and she ignores it and keeps on knitting. Uh, she begs for help, appealing to Madame Defarge as a wife and a mother, and Madame Defarge is like, yeah, wives and mothers been dying in France for a while now. Good try, though. You tried. <laughs> yeah, she cold. So days, weeks... And even more than a year pass, and even Dr. Manet and Manette, Manet, I don't know, and all his cultural cachet isn't enough to get Darnay out of prison. Although, it at least keeps him alive until finally, the day of his official trial. And it's, it's a packed house, and everyone there is just like, murder him, we want blood, blah. It's, it's kind of like a wrestling event. <laughs> Although, probably less fun. <laughs> yeah, probably a little less fun, because actual murder. Yeah, less fun, more killing. But same same audience screaming for blood adventures. Right, yeah, for sure. <laughs> and uh, Darnay testifies that he hasn't hurt the poor or anything, because he's been living in England the whole time, and he's got a wife and a kid, and he shows them to the court, and the audience is like, ooh. And when asked why he came back, he says he felt a moral obligation after getting the letter. Like, he came back to save a life. That's good, right? 
And the audience is like, hmm, yeah, you know, that is good. Maybe don't murder him because they're just very easily swayed. <laughs> and then Manette takes the stand and is like, look, guys, he was even tried for treason in England because they thought he liked France and the United States too much. And the crowd goes fucking buck wild. <laughs> and they're just like, USA. USA, which is a weird thing to talk about. It's like a court in France. I'm just pick, I'm picturing it in my head. Do they have signs? Like it is. Like it really is a wrestling event. Exactly. <laughs> Charles Darnier, could he be played by John Cena? Yes or no? Uh, so Charles Dickens, I mean, this is definitely not intended to be funny, but he originally started out as a comedy writer. So from that lens, I, I could definitely see like a world where John Cena would play this part, but I would prefer he didn't. <laughs> it's what what is john cena here in, in the room it was so convincing <laughs> it was i i know you know i wouldn't even know because i can't see him yeah, he's not right. here can't hear him can't see him but you can't see him in cock blockers <laughs> that's a good movie it is, it is it really is it's a good movie so yeah, everybody fucking loves it. The, the crowd is won over. And because this is how trials work, Darnay is set free. The end. Or is it? It's not, unfortunately. <laughs> Be nice, though. They celebrate, but they got to remain in Paris for a few days to not look suspicious by like trying to fuck right off out of the country, I guess. Except... Except. Except, Except that suddenly there are soldiers at the door who are all like, change of plans, give... Give Darnay back. And Dr. Manette is like, uh, wh- why? We we did the thing. And the soldiers are like, well, yeah, but now now he's been denounced. And, and Manette's like, well, well, by who? And they tell him, well, Monsieur and Madame Defarge, which, you know, no surprise there, and someone else. Who could it be? Who could it be now? <laughs> 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 yeah, yeah, you want to you give that another shot? Daniel Bryan. <laughs> Yes, yes, yes. Charles yes, Darnay, I'm yes, calling you yes, out. He doesn't yes, wait. He doesn't yes. wrestle anymore. No, he does. He? He's back. He's no. He's back. Oh, okay. Yes, yes. <laughs> I don't know if anyone follows this we posted, but if you're listening at home, not only is Daniel Bryan back in world champion, but he's like playing this hippie vegan thing guy, but he's completely evil, and it's just wonderful. Huh. I highly recommend it. I'm just sold. But yeah, unfortunately, it's not him, and <laughs> we won't find out who it is yet. Because first, we have to deal with the fact that Carton's here now. It's been over a year, and he just decided to show up in France now. Presumably, hashtag for the drama. <laughs> I can see that. Also, remember that guy, Barsad, from like, you know, a thousand years ago in the beginning of the story? <laughs> right. Yeah, he, he's had a, a, apparently a subplot where he was someone's brother and a secret spy for the revolution. No one gives a shit. All that matters is that Carton's able to bully him into making sure that however Darnay's new trial goes... At least one of them will be able to go see him in prison afterwards. Then, it's trial time. Again. So Darnay's back in the hot seat, thanks to the Defarges, and... Are you guys ready? You ready for I'm this? Ready. This shocking reveal? Are you ready for this? Are you ready for the French Revolution? And then you just have the air horns, and then the sounds of people... Sounds of people getting their heads sliced off. He's been denounced by the Defarges... And Dr. Manette? Dun, dun, dun. <gasps> yes. Defarge steps forward with the thing he was looking for in Manette's cell however long ago at this point. Probably years ago. It's a note written by the good doctor during his imprisonment. 
It details how back in 1767, he was sent to treat two peasants that had been brutally injured by two noblemen jackasses. There was a young woman that they wanted, but she was married. So they murdered her husband and tried to kidnap and rape her, but her brother defended her, and so they stabbed him. Another stabbing. There's always plenty of stabbings to go around. So Dr. Manette tries to save them, but the, unfortunately both the brother and the sister die. Now these two noblemen are the Marquis Everbond and his brother, Charles Darnay's dad. They couldn't have Dr. Manette talking about this whole thing, so they threw his ass in the Bastille forever. And after hearing the letter, the crowd decides that since the brothers Evermond are both dead, Darnay will die in their place. Because that's fair. <laughs> Makes sense. And so Lucy and everybody else are just distraught that they, they failed to save him and they all cry and they're just like, well, this, this sucks. Carton goes to the wine shop to try and appeal to the Defarges and Monsieur Defarge is just uh, Monsieur Defarge is a train. God damn it. <laughs> you can't ask a train for mercy. And uh, Monsieur Defarge is like, this revolution thing's been going on for years now, and we've killed a fuck ton of people, and it's exhausting, and probably should end at some point. And uh, Madame Defarge is like, oh, it'll end when all the aristocrats are dead, and I've bathed in their blood. Maybe we should kill Dr. Manette, too, for trying to save his son-in-law. Maybe we should kill his daughter. Maybe I've gone completely mad with power. Who's to say? Who didn't see that one coming? Also, because it's a fucking Dickens novel, she reveals that the woman that the Marquis kidnapped and raped was her sister. Because of course, of course. she was. It's like the Star Wars thing where it, <laughs> it has to involve a Skywalker, <laughs> right? Exactly. <laughs> if it doesn't involve a Skywalker, it didn't really happen. So Carton gives up on trying to make that happen. He tells Lori that none of them are safe in Paris anymore and they need to get the fuck out. But first, Carton has a stop to make. With Bassard's help, he gets into Darnay's cell and is like, hey bro, swap clothes with me, don't ask why. And Darnay does. But he's like, you know, wait, wait, what's going on? And so Carton old-timey chloroforms him and has Barsad drag him out. Because remember, Darnay and Carton look exactly the same for absolutely no reason, except that Dickens needed them to in order to resolve the plot. <laughs> And so Darnay is delivered back to his family, and Carton is to be guillotined in his place. Meanwhile, Madame Defarge decides that she really should go kill Lucy after all, and heads to their house, but only finds their housekeeper, Miss Pross, who doesn't speak French. So they just kind of yell at each other back and forth, not understanding each other for a while. And then they fight, and then Madame Defarge tries to pull a gun, and Miss Pross gets it from her and shoots her dead. <laughs> R.I.P. Madame Defarge. Your love of knitting was almost as strong as your love of revenge. It's a weird, it's a weird way to kill off like your main villain. It's really weird. Like it feels so rushed and out of nowhere. I seriously, you know, going through the book, I wonder if he he didn't really have a complete story, and then they kind of told him to wrap it up. Maybe yeah. It's like, dude, you got it. You're running out of time. I mean, we know that he did revise kind of on the go. A lot of times, based on suggestions from the readers. That's right. The only thing that I can say kind of in defense is that, you know, she was just so sort of vengeance hungry that it's her own fault that she goes to the house and it's it's her own gun that kills her and all that sure. stuff. But it still seems to just kind of happen. And then finally, the novel ends with Carton getting guillotined. His last thoughts being that this thing he's doing is better than anything else he's ever done. R.I.P. Carton, you were kind of a downer for no particular reason, despite clearly being a fairly decent dude who died for someone you didn't even really like that much. The end for real this time. <laughs> and that's a tale of two cities on speed. <laughs> it says everything that even just to condense and describe the book, it's not quick to do. You know, like most books that are far longer could be summed up in like a sentence. So let's get into adaptations. 
They're the usual classic literature suspects. Radio plays, stage plays, musicals, opera, etc. They had a good run of silent films, but the most recent film version was way back in 1958 with Christopher Lee as the evil Marquis. Oh, really? Yeah, the one who runs over children and is stabbed. But yeah, because it's so fucking long, Tale of Two Cities has had much better luck being adapted as a miniseries, with the BBC cranking out like four different ones between like 1957 and 1980. The most recent one was in 1989 on PBS, so like clearly we're overdue for another. Tragically, the film Garfield, A Tale of Two Kitties does not actually have anything to do with, <laughs> with the plot of this novel. How many kitties are there? There's there's really only, like, one, I think there's one kitty. It's the prince and the pauper. It's a different... I think that's a Dickens story. I'm not 100% sure. But Garfield gets mistaken for, like, a, a, a king cat. Look, I just read the Wikipedia page. I've never <laughs> seen the damn movie. But so the the movie that we, as we ruined before because we all got super excited, <laughs> the movie that has a, a whole ton of Tale of Two Cities in it, and which I think is about as out of left field, if not more so than fucking Garfield, is 2012's The Dark Knight Rises. Yes. <laughs> that movie's seven years old? Yes. Yeah. Wow. <laughs> I know. So, like, we know for a fact that Christopher Nolan has flat out said, I read Tale of Two Cities. So, I mean, like, we know it's a flat out as close to an adaptation as you can do within the confines of Batman. But, like, I kind of struggle with Bane as Madame Lafarge. Because, I mean, yes, he's, <laughs> he's like, he's openly nitic, right? I don't remember that. Like, I was reading the, the thing online where it was saying, you know, oh, he has, like, the, the fake courts where, where people are just yeah. declared guilty. And I'm like, yeah, that's a thing. And they're like, and he's knitting during one of them. And I was like, wait, what? Yes, yeah, they cut. Yes, I love knitting. I love to knit. Knitting <laughs> is my favorite pastime. <laughs> I made you this lovely scarf, Batman. Well, you see, you see him do it. I think it's before they were going to take away, spoilers, before they were going to take away Talia al Ghul. Oh, yes. But spoilers for The Dark Knight Rises, yes, I guess. For a movie that came out seven years ago. Spoiler, spoiler. And it's, it's just not not that good. Right, yeah. It's not, I would have preferred Batman died at the end, sort of like Carden. Thank you. Yeah. <laughs> I'm one of those people who believe that the film would have been better. Had that happened? Oh, it it absolutely would. But uh, so but during that court sequence when Talia is being led away, he he could see him clearly knitting, and he he pulls her over. That's so wild. And then and then his thing where he says like the fire rises is a chapter title in the book. But here's so here's my thing. I think Talia is more of an embodiment of what dickens was trying to get across and bane was because bane like the whole revolution thing he could not give less of a shit about like it was it was just to fuck with batman that's true hers is personally motivated yeah like she she is like lafarge and that's like blind vengeance of i'm going to nuke everybody because you killed my dad yeah so yeah i guess it's kind of like split between the two of them the big argument that that batman is also cardin and um yeah he, he's he's carton and darnay because he 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 dies for gotham but then he's like ah I actually <laughs> that's, that's i didn't right. <laughs> yeah he's he's definitely split between those two characters which again is why he should have died because that's the ending to the book so that i mean that was always kind of a, a weird thing i i have trouble figuring if catwoman is really lucy or not oh god yeah i think if we try to untangle it character by character it's just it's it's not gonna shake out real well but there there's a character in the movie named uh Bassard, that's right and during bruce wayne's funeral his, his fake ass funeral commissioner gordon does just read a passage from the novel right so i mean it doesn't get more obvious than that it's like i will stand here and read a tale of two cities 
And there's also like this, uh, people have really gone, you know, because it's the internet, if you Google it, people have really broken this down and talk about uh, how misplaced letters, or letters that never got to who they were supposed to go to, also plays a role in The Dark Knight Rises as well, uh, as it does in the book. Or is that more in The Dark Knight that, or is that in The Dark God? It's, it's been in, so, so long in since The Dark Knight Rises, uh, Alfred Burns, what's her name? Yeah, he burns... Uh, d- uh, Rachel. That's it, Rachel. <laughs> I had to do that to remember. That's <laughs> uh, an easy way to remember it, right? <laughs> it's just ridiculous. Yeah. But, uh, and then Commissioner Gordon's speech also is another instance of something that was supposed to be presented in one way that got intercepted and presented by something else. Because um, he was going to, you know, that was going to be his big speech and he was going to read it and Bane finds it and reads it instead. Right. That's just wild. <laughs> All right, um, and now we've come to that point in the show where the, the point we always get to where we answer the very important questions. So, RJ, we'll start with you. Hey, RJ. What's up? Tale of Two Cities? Yep. Good or bad? My problem with the book is he picks the wrong cities. <laughs> One did in Paris. That's some weak shit. What was it that yours was St. Louis and Minneapolis? Wow. Yeah, those were the Twin <laughs> Cities, really. I don't. I don't What's the Twin Cities, Mike? What's I, there? I don't know, and I don't. Like, really? I don't feel ashamed of not knowing that because Minneapolis I don't is care. And we'll forget. Ah, oh, Saint Paul. Okay, I knew it was a saint. That's why I messed it up in my head because you did say it earlier. There, there are different states. I will forget it as soon as we're done with this. <laughs> hey, Megan. Yeah, RJ. Tale of Two Cities. It's a book, all right. <laughs> Good, bad, or Napoleon. <laughs> I can't even remember my Dickens opinions from one book to, to the next on the show. But no, bad. Fuck this book. <laughs> like, ha- half the shit that happens in it doesn't even make sense. It's really long. It, the characters are, are boring and kind of dumb. And most of them don't do anything. And if they do do things, th- their motivations are very confusing. Madame Defarge is like the, the character with the clearest motivations whose actions make the most sense. Which I don't think was what he wanted. So, yeah, I say bad. <laughs> Hey, BJ. Hey. Tale of Two Cities. <laughs> <laughs> My host Morales. Hey. Hey. <laughs> Tale of Two Cities. Good. Oh, bad? it's so bad. I yeah. I'm I'm telling you, I I really really wanted to get through it because I um OCD about a lot of things when I do research, and so to me it's just so bad. And I I tried to make it work, and I couldn't. I just rather watch Batman. Just go go. Yeah. Just go watch the Dark Knight Rises, <laughs> and then do and then do me a favor. As soon as they hold Bruce Wayne's funeral, but as soon as that's done, turn off the film. Just turn, yeah, just turn it off. It's it is that so way. much better. You will, you will enjoy that film immensely if you turn it off right after that. So that will about do it for this episode of Ono oh Lit Class. BJ, where where can people find you and the wonderful things you do on Earth? <laughs> Slightly more in detail. <laughs> North America. <laughs> Think of- I said BJ, not RJ. <laughs> I trust me. I know where to find BJ. <laughs> I can be found on Twitter at BJ Mendelson, where I mostly talk about professional wrestling for some reason. But all my stuff can be found over at BJMendelson.com. And if you want to look at for my stuff on Audible, Comixology, Amazon, uh, it's I'm all over the place. Just enter into the search box BJ Mendelson, and you will find all sorts of awesome stuff to check out. Cool. Awesome. And if you want to support Ono Lit Class, leave us ratings, reviews, tell your friends, tell your enemies, tell Batman. Be like, Batman, I got this podcast you really ought to check out. You can follow us on Twitter at Ono Lit Class Pod. You should join our Facebook group and toss some book memes around. And you can listen anywhere, everywhere, and at onolitclass.com. Thank you again for coming on, BJ. That was, was awesome. Oh, thanks for having me on. 
The next episode will be on April 4th. So until then, I'm Megan. I'm RJ. And I'm BJ Mendelson. We love you. Bye. Speaking of uh, real facts, or actually, no, no, not speaking of real facts. Because we're not going to be, yes, speaking of fake facts.